23, WN3 will, the last insurrection caused a fresh deportation, 24,000 being banished beyond the Ural Mountains, 10,000 of these were sent to eastern Siberia, the balance being distributed in the governments west of the Yenisei. The decree of June, 1867, allowed many of these prisoners to return to Poland. The government has always endeavored to scatter the exiles and prevent their congregating in such numbers as to cause inconvenience. The prime object of deportation to Siberia is to people the country and develop its natural wealth. Though Russia occupies nearly an eighth of the land on the face of the globe, her population numbers but about 70 millions. It is her policy to people her territory, and she bends her energies to this end. She does not allow the immigration of her subjects to any appreciable extent, and she punishes but few crimes with death, notwithstanding her general tolerance on religious matters. She punishes with severity a certain sect that discourages propagation. There are other facts I might mention as illustrations were it not for the fastidiousness of the present age. Siberia is much more in need of population than European Russia, and exiles are sent thither to become inhabitants. So far as the matter of sentence goes there is little difference between political and criminal exiles. The sentence is in accordance with the offense to be punished, and may be light or severe. Some exiles are simply banished to Siberia, and can do almost anything except go away. They may travel as they choose, engage in business, and even hold official position. It is no bar to their progress that they emigrated involuntarily. If they forget their evil ways and are good citizens, others will be equally oblivious and encourage them. They have special inducements to become colonists and till the soil or develop its mineral wealth. With honesty and industry they have at least a fair chance in life. Some exiles are confined to certain districts, governments, towns, or villages, and must report at stated intervals to the chief of police. These intervals are not the same in all cases, but vary from one day to a month, or even more. Some are not allowed to go beyond specified limits without express permission from the authorities, while others may absent themselves as they choose during the intervals of reporting to the police. Some can engage in whatever business they find advantageous, while others are prohibited certain employments but not restricted as to others. If a man is sentenced to become a colonist, the government gives him a house or means to build it, a plot of ground, and the necessary tools. He is not allowed to be anything else than a colonist. Criminals of a certain grade cannot engage in commerce, and the same restriction applies to politics. No criminal can be a teacher, either in a public or private school, and no politic can teach in a public school. While I was in Siberia an order was issued prohibiting the latter class engaging in any kind of educational work except music drawing, and painting. Many criminal and political offenders are drafted in the army in much the same manner that our prisons sent their able-bodied men into military service during our late war. Their terms of enlistment are various, but generally not less than 15 years. The men receive the pay and rations of soldiers, and have the possibility of promotion before them. They are sent to regiments stationed at distant posts in order to diminish the chances of desertion. The Siberian and Caucasian regiments receive the greater portion of these recruits. Many members of the peculiar religious sect mentioned elsewhere are sent to the Caucasian frontier. They are said to be very tractable and obedient, but not reliable for aggressive military operations. An exile may receive from his friends money to an amount not exceeding 25 rubles a month. If his wife has property of her own she may enjoy a separate income, 
those confined in prisons or kept at labor may receive money to the same extent, but it must pass through the hands of the officials. Of course the occupants of prisons are fed by government, and so are those under sentence of hard labor. The men restricted to villages and debarred from profitable employment receive monthly allowances in money and flour, barely enough for their subsistence. There are complaints that dishonest officials steal a part of these allowances, but the practice is not as frequent as formerly. A prisoner's comfort in any part of the world depends in a great measure upon the character of the officer in charge of him. Siberia offers no exception to this rule. Formerly the Polish exiles enjoyed more social freedom than at present. The cause of the change was thus explained to me. Five or six years ago a Polish noble who had been exiled lived at Irkutsk and enjoyed the friendship of several officers. The Amor had been recently opened, and this man asked and obtained the privilege of visiting it, giving his parole not to leave Siberia. At Nikolaevsk he embraced the opportunity to escape, and advised others to do the same. This breach of confidence led to greater circumspection, and the distrust was increased by the conduct of other exiles. Since that time the Poles have been under greater restraint. Many books on Russia contain interesting stories of the brutality toward exiles, both on the road and after they have reached their destination. Undoubtedly there have been instances of cruelty, just as in every country in Christendom. But I do not believe the Russians are worse in this respect than other people. I saw a great many exiles during my journey through Siberia. Frequently when on the winter road I met convoys of them and never observed any evidence of needless severity. Five-sixths of the exiles I met on the road were in sleighs like those used by Russian merchants when traveling. There were generally three persons in a sleigh, and I thought them comfortably clad. I could see no difference between them and their guards, except that the latter carried muskets and sabers. Any women among them received special attention, particularly when they were young and pretty. I saw two old ladies who were handled tenderly by the soldiers and treated with apparent distinction. When exiles were on foot, their guards marched with them and the women of the party rode in sleighs. The object of deportation is to people Siberia, if the government permitted cruelties that caused half of the exiles to die on the road, as some accounts aver, it would be inconsistent with its policy. As before mentioned, the ripe age to which most of the Decemberists lived, is a proof that they were not subjected to physical torture. In the eyes of the government these men were the very worst offenders, and if they did not suffer hardships and cruelties it is not probable that all others would be generally ill-used. I do not for a moment suppose exile is either attractive or desirable, but, so far as I know, it does not possess the horrors attributed to it. The worst part of exile is to be sent to hard labor. But the unpleasant features of such punishment are not confined to Siberia. Plenty of testimony on this point can be obtained at Sing Sing and Pentonville. It is unpleasant to leave one's home and become an involuntary emigrant to a far country. The Siberian road is one I would never travel out of pure pleasure, and I can well understand that it must be many times disagreeable when one journeys unwillingly. But, once in Siberia, the worldly circumstances of many exiles are better than they were at home. If a man can forget that he is deprived of liberty, and I presume this is the most difficult thing of all, he is not, under ordinary circumstances, very badly off in Siberia. Certainly many exiles choose to remain when their term of banishment is ended. A laboring man is better paid for his services and is more certain of employment than in European Russia. He leads a more independent life and has better prospects of advancement than in the older civilization. 
Many Poles say they were drawn unwillingly into the acts that led to their exile, and if they return home they may be involved in like trouble again. In Poland they are at the partial mercy of malcontents who have nothing to lose and can never remain at ease. In Siberia there are no such disturbing influences. About 10,000 exiles are sent to Siberia every year, except in times of political disturbance in Poland or elsewhere. Nearly all the exiles are offenders against society or property. The notion that they are generally politics is very far from correct. As well might one suppose the majority of the convicts at Sing Sing were from the upper classes of New York. The regular stream of exiles is composed almost entirely of criminal offenders. Occasional floods of revolutionists follow the attempts at independence. I made frequent inquiries concerning the condition of the exiles, and so far as I could learn they were generally well off. I say generally, because I heard of some cases of poverty and hardship and doubtless there were others that I never heard of. A large part of the Siberian population is made up of exiles and their descendants. A gentleman frequently sent me his carriage during my stay at Irkutsk. It was managed by an intelligent driver who pleased me with his skill and dash. One evening, when he was a little intoxicated, my friend and myself commented in French on his condition, and were a little surprised to find that he understood us. He was an exile from St. Petersburg where he had been coachman to a French merchant. The clerk of the hotel was an exile, and so was one of the waiters, Isvoschiks, or Hackman, counted many exiles in their ranks, and so did laborers of other professions, occasionally clerks in stores, marketmen, bootmakers, and tailors ascribed their exile to some discrepancy between their conduct and the laws. I met a Polish gentleman in charge of the Museum of the Geographical Society of Eastern Siberia and was told that the establishment rapidly improved in his hands. Two physicians of Irkutsk were unfortunates from Warsaw, and one of them had distanced all competitors in the extent and success of his practice. Then there were makers of cigarettes, dealers in various commodities, and professors of diverse arts. Some of the educated Siberians I met told me they had been taught almost entirely by exiles. Before the abolition of serfdom a proprietor could send his human property into exile. He was not required to give any reason. The record accompanying the order of banishment stating only that the serf was exiled by the will of his master. This privilege was open to enormous abuse. But happily the ukase of liberty has removed it. The design of the system was no doubt to enable proprietors to rid themselves of serfs who were idle, dissolute, or quarrelsome, but had not committed any act the law could touch. A proprietor exiling a serf was required to pay his traveling expenses of 25 rubles, and to furnish him an outfit of summer and winter clothing. A wife was allowed to follow her husband, with all their children not matured, and all their expenses were to be paid. The abuse of the system consisted in the power to banish a man who had committed no offense at all. The loss of services and the expense of exiling a serf may have been a slight guarantee against this. But if the proprietor were an unprincipled tyrant or a sensualist, and he might be both, there was no protection for his subjects. It has happened that the best man on an estate incurred the displeasure of his owner and went to Siberia in consequence. Exile is a severe punishment to the Russian peasant, who clings with enduring tenacity to the place where his youthful days were passed. Every serf exiled for a minor offense or at the will of his master was appointed on his arrival in Siberia to live in a specified district. If he could produce a certificate of good behavior at the end of three years, 
he was authorized to clear and cultivate as much land as he wished, if single he could marry, but he was not compelled to do so, he was exempt from taxes for twelve years, and after that only paid a trifle, he had no master and could act for himself in all things except in returning to Russia, he was under the disadvantage of having no legal existence, and though the land he worked was his own and no one could disturb him, he did not hold it under written title, the criminal who served at labor in the mines was placed, at the expiration of his sentence, in the same category as the exile for minor offenses, both cultivated land in like manner and on equal terms, some became wealthy and were able to secure the privileges of citizenship, chapter XXXVII, the descendants of exiles are in much greater number than the exiles themselves, eastern Siberia is mainly peopled by them, and western Siberia very largely so, they are all free peasants and enjoy a condition far superior to that of the serf under the system prevalent before 1859. Many of them have become wealthy through gold mining, commerce, and agriculture, and occupy positions they never could have obtained had they lived in European Russia. I know a merchant whose fortune is counted by millions, and who is famous through Siberia for his enterprise and generosity. He is the son of an exiled serf and has risen by his own ability. Since I left Siberia I learned with pleasure that the emperor has honored him with a decoration. Many of the prominent merchants and proprietary miners were mentioned to me as examples of the prosperity of the second and third generation from banished men. I was told particularly of a wealthy gold miner whose evening of life is cheered by an ample fortune and two well-educated children. Forty years ago his master capriciously sent him to Siberia. The man found his banishment the best thing that could happen. The system of serfdom never had any practical hold in Siberia. There was but one Siberian proprietor of serfs in existence at the time of the emancipation. This was Mr. Rodinkoff of Krasnoyarsk, whose grandfather received a grant of serfs and a patent of nobility from the Empress Catherine. None of the family, with a single exception, ever attempted more than nominal exercise of authority over the peasants, and this one paid for his imprudence with his life. He attempted to put in force his full proprietary rights, and the result was his death by violence during a visit to one of his estates. The difference between the conditions of the Russian and Siberian peasantry was that between slavery and freedom, the owner of serfs had rarely any common interest with his people, and his chief business was to make the most out of his human property. Serfdom was degrading to master and serf, just as slavery degraded owner and slave. The music bore the stamp of servility as the Negro slave bore it, and it will take as much time to wear it away in the one as the other. Centuries of oppression in Russia could not fail to open a wide gulf between the nobility and those who obeyed them. Thanks to Alexander the work of filling this gulf has begun, but it will require many years and much toil to complete it. The comparative freedom enjoyed in Siberia was not without visible result. The peasants were more prosperous than in Russia. They lived in better houses and enjoyed more real comforts of life. The absence of masters and the liberty to act for themselves begot an air of independence in the peasant class that contrasted agreeably with the cringing servility of the serf. Wealth was open to all who sought it, and the barriers between the different ranks of society were partially broken down. The peasants that acquired wealth began to cultivate refined tastes. They paid more attention to the education of their children than was shown by the same class in Russia and the desire for education rapidly increased. 
The emancipation of the serfs in Russia was probably brought about by the marked superiority of the Siberian population in prosperity and intelligence. In coming ages the Russians will revere the name of Alexander not less than that of Peter the Great. To the latter is justly due the credit of raising the nation from barbarism, the former has the immortal honor of removing the stain of serfdom. The difficulties in the way were great and the emperor had few supporters, but he steadily pursued his object and at length earned the eternal gratitude of his people. Russia is yet in her developing stage. The shock of the change was severe and not unattended with danger, but the critical period is past, and the nation has commenced a career of freedom. The serf has been awakened to a new life, and his education is just commencing. Already there is increased prosperity in some parts of the empire showing that the free man understands his new condition. The proprietors who were able to appreciate and prepare for the change have been positively benefited, while others who continued obstinate were ruined. On the whole the derangement by the transition has been less than many friends of the measure expected, and by no means equal to that prophesied by its opponents. But the grandest results in the nation's progress are yet to come, and it is from future generations that Alexander will receive his warmest praise. The working of mines on government account has greatly diminished in the past few years, and the number of hard labor convicts in Siberia more than equals the capacity of the mines. When the political exiles, after the revolution of 1863, arrived at Irkutsk, the mines were already filled with convicts. The politics sentenced to hard labor were employed in building roads, most of them being sent to the southern end of Lake Baikal. In June, 1866, 720 prisoners were sent to this labor, and divided into eight or ten parties to work on as many sections of the road. Before the end of the month the revolt occurred. Various accounts have been given and different motives assigned for it. I was told by several Poles that the prisoners were half-starved, and the little food they received was bad. Hunger and a desire to escape were the motives to the insurrection. On the other hand the Russians told me the prisoners were properly fed and the revolt must be attributed entirely to the hope of escaping from Siberia. I obtained from an officer, who sat on the court-martial which investigated the affair, the following particulars, on the 24th of June, OS the working party at Koltukskoy, the western end of the road, disarmed its guard by a sudden and bloodless attack. The insurgents then moved eastward along the line of the road, and on their way overpowered successively the guards of the other parties. Many of the prisoners refused to take part in the affair and remained at their work. A Polish officer named Shamovich assumed command of the insurgents, who directed their march toward Posolsky. As soon as news of the affair reached Irkutsk, the governor-general ordered a battalion of soldiers by steamer to Posolsky. On the 28th of June a fight occurred at the river Bistrina. The insurgents were defeated with a loss of 25 or 30 men while the force sent against them lost five men and one officer. The Polish leader was among the killed. After the defeat the insurgents separated in small bands and fled into the mountains. They were pursued by Tartar cavalry, who scoured the country thoroughly and retook all the fugitives. The insurrection caused much alarm at its outbreak, as it was supposed all prisoners in Siberia were in the conspiracy. Exaggerated reports were spread, and all possible precautions taken but they proved unnecessary. The conspiracy extended no farther than the working parties on the Baikal Road. The prisoners were brought to Irkutsk, where a court-martial investigated the affair. A Russian court-martial does not differ materially from any other in the manner of its proceedings. 
it requires positive evidence for or against a person accused, and, like other courts, gives him the benefit of doubts. My informant told me that the court in this case listened to all evidence that had any possible bearing on the question. The sitting continued several weeks, and after much deliberation the court rendered a finding and sentence. In the finding the prisoners were divided into five grades, and their sentences accorded with the letter of the law. The first grade comprised seven persons, known to have been leaders in the revolt. These were sentenced to be shot. In the second grade there were 197, who knew the design to revolt and joined in the insurrection. One-tenth of these were to suffer death. The choice being made by lot, the remainder were sentenced to 20 years labor. The third grade comprised 122, ignorant of the conspiracy before the revolt, but who joined the insurgents. These received in addition of two or three years to their original sentences to labor. The fourth grade included 94 men, who knew the design to revolt but refused to join the insurgents. These were sentenced to remain under suspicion. In the fifth and last grade there were 260, who were ignorant of the conspiracy and remained at their posts. Their innocence was fully established, and, of course, relieved them from all charge. It was found that the design of the insurgents was to escape into Mongolia and make their way to Peking. This would have been next to impossible, for two reasons, the character of the country, and the treaty between China and Russia. The region to be traversed from the Siberian frontier toward Peking is the Mongolian steppe or desert. The only food obtainable on the steppe is mutton from the flocks of the nomad inhabitants. These are principally along the road from Kyotka, and even there are by no means numerous. The escaping exiles in avoiding the road to ensure safety would have run great risk of starvation. The treaty between China and Russia requires that fugitives from one empire to the other shall be given up. Had the exiles succeeded in crossing Mongolia and reaching the populous parts of China, they would have been once more in captivity and returned to Russian hands. The finding of the court-martial was submitted to General Korsakov for approval or revision. The general commuted the sentence of three men in the first grade to twenty years' labor. Those in the second grade sentenced to death were relieved from this punishment and placed on the same footing as their companions. In the third grade the original sentence at the time of banishment was increased by one or two years' labor. Other penalties were not changed. During my stay in Irkutsk the four prisoners condemned to death suffered the extreme penalty. The execution occurring in the forest near the town. A firing party of 48 men was divided into four squads. According to the custom at all military executions one musket in each squad was charged with a blank cartridge. The four prisoners were shot simultaneously, and all died instantly. Two of them were much dejected, the others met their deaths firmly and shouted, Vive la Pologne, as they heard the order to fire. I was told that the crowd of people, though large, was very quiet and moved away in silence when the execution was over. Very few officers and soldiers were to present beyond those whose duty required them to witness or take part in the affair. One of the most remarkable escapes from Siberia was that of Rufin Piotrowski, a Polish emigrant who left Paris in 1844 to return to his native country, with impossible plans and crude ideas for her relief. The end of his journey was Kamenets, in Podlia, where he gave himself out as a Frenchman who had come to give private lessons in foreign languages, and received the usual permit from the authorities without exciting any suspicion. He was soon introduced into the best society, and the better to shield his connections. He chose the houses of Russian employees, 
his security rested upon his not being supposed to understand the Polish language, and, during the nine months that he remained, he obtained such command over himself, that the police had not the slightest suspicion of his being a Pole. The warning voice came from St. Petersburg, through the spies in Paris. Early one winter's morning he was roughly shaken out of slumber by the director of police, and carried before the governor of the province, who had come specially on this errand. His position was represented to him as one of the greatest danger, and he was recommended to make a full confession. This for many days he refused to do, until a large number of those who were his accomplices were brought before him, and their weary, anxious faces induced him to exclaim loudly, and in his native tongue, yes, I am a Pole, and have returned because I could not bear exile from my native land any longer. Here I wish to live in offensive and quiet confiding my secret to a few countrymen, and I have nothing more to say. An immediate order was made out for the culprit's departure to Kiev. According to the story he has published his sufferings were frightful, and were not lessened when they stopped at a hut, where some rusty chains were brought out, the rings of which were thrust over his ankles, they proved much too small, and the rust prevented the bars from turning in the sockets, so that the pain was insupportable. He was rudely carried and thrown into the carriage, and thus arrived in an almost insensible condition at the fortress of Kiev. After many months' detention in this prison, being closely watched and badly treated, he was sentenced to hard labor in Siberia for life, degraded from his rank as a noble, and ordered to make the journey in chains. As soon as this was read to him, he was taken to a kibitka, with three horses, irons were put on and he was placed between two armed soldiers, the gates of the fortress were shut, and the road to Siberia was before him. An employee came up to N. Piotrowski, and timidly offered him a small packet, saying, Accept this from my saint, the convict not understanding. He added, You are a Pole, and do not know our customs. It is my fate day, when it is above all a duty to assist the unfortunate. Pray, accept it. Then, in the name of my saint, after whom I am called, the packet contained bread, salt, and money. Night and day the journey continued, with the utmost rapidity, for about a month, when, in the middle of the night, they stopped at the fortress of Omsk, where he was placed for a few hours with a young officer who had committed some breach of discipline. They talked on incessantly until the morning. So great was the pleasure of meeting with an educated person. A map of Siberia was in the room which Piotrowski examined with feverish interest. Ah, said his companion, are you meditating flight? Pray, do not think of it, many of your fellow countrymen have tried it, and never succeeded. At midday he was brought before Prince Gorchakov, and the critical moment of his fate arrived, he might either be sent to some of the government factories in the neighborhood, or to the mines underground. An hour passed in cruel suspense while this was debated. At length one of the council announced to him that he was to be sent to the distillery of Ekaterinsky, 300 miles to the north of Omsk. The clerks around congratulated him on his destination, and his departure was immediate. On a wintry morning he reached a vast plain near the river Erdish, on which a village of about 200 wooden huts was built around a factory. When introduced into the clerk's office, the young man who was writing jumped up and threw himself into his arms. He also was a pole from Krakow a well-known poet, and sent away for life as a measure of precaution. Soon they were joined by another political criminal, they spoke rapidly and with extreme emotion. 
entreating their new friend to bear everything in the most submissive and patient manner, as the only means of escaping from menial employment, and being promoted to the clerk's office, not long was he permitted to rest. A convict came and ordered him to take a broom and sweep away a mass of dirt that some masons had left, a murderer was his companion, and thus he went on until nightfall, when his two friends were permitted to visit him, in the presence of the soldiers and convicts, most of the latter of whom had been guilty of frightful crimes, thus day after day passed on, in sweeping, carrying wood and water, amid snow and frost, his good conduct brought him, in a year and a half, to the office where he received ten francs a month and his rations, and the work was light. During this time he saw and conversed with many farmers and travelers from a distance, and gained every information about the roads, rivers, etc. with a view to the escape he was ever meditating. Some of the natives unite with the soldiers in exercising an incessant supervision over the convicts, and a common saying among the Tartars is, in killing a squirrel you get but one skin, whilst a convict has three his coat his shirt, and his skin. Slowly and painfully he collected the materials for his journey. First of all, a passport was an essential. A convict who had been sentenced for making false money, still possessed an excellent stamp of the royal arms, this Piotrowski bought for a few francs. The sheet of paper was easily obtained in the office, and the passport forged. After a long waiting, he procured a Siberian with that island a sheepskin with the wool turned in to preserve the head from the cold three shirts, a sheepskin born ass, and a red velvet cap bordered with fur the dress of a well-to-do peasant. On a sharp frosty night he quitted Ekaterinsky for Terra, having determined to try the road to the north for Archangel. As the least frequented, a large fair was shortly to be held at Irbit, at the foot of the Urals, and he hoped to hide himself in the vast crowd of people that frequented it. Soon after he had crossed the river a sledge was heard behind him. He trembled for his safety his pursuers were perhaps coming. Where are you going? shouted the peasant who drove it. To Terra, give me ten sous, and I will take you. No, it is too much. I will give eight. Well, so let it be. Jump in quickly. He was set down in the street, and knocking at a house, inquired in the Russian fashion, Have you horses to hire? Yes a pair. Where to? To Irbit, I am a commercial traveler, and going to meet my master, I am behind my time, and wish to go as quickly as possible. No sooner had they set off than a snowstorm came on, and the driver lost his way. They wandered about all night in the forest, and it was impossible to describe the anguish and suffering Piotrowski endured. Return to Terra, said he, as the day broke, I will engage another sledge, and you need not expect any money from me. After the folly you have shown in losing your way, they turned, but had hardly gone a mile before the driver jumped up, looked around, and cried, 